Welcome to The Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay. This is Reality Asserts Itself, and we're in New York. In her 2016 book, Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business, Rana Faruhar describes how financialization is bleeding the global economy to make a handful of elite investors very, very rich, while holding back innovation and productive investment in the real economy. She writes that the financial sector represents only 7% of the U.S. economy, but takes around 25% of all corporate profit, while creating only 4% of all jobs. According to Ms. Furuhar, even companies associated with, as associated with research, development, and creativity as Apple borrows to invest more in stock buybacks and acting like a financial institution than they do developing qualitative leaps in their products. But more about that later. Her book is a scathing critique of the lords of Wall Street, yet she remains hopeful that capitalism can be reformed, and we shouldn't give up on it yet. Rana is a, an associate editor and global business columnist for the Financial Times. She's also CNN's global economic analyst. Prior to her work at CNN and the Financial Times, Rana spent six years as an assistant managing editor and economic columnist for Time. And before that, she spent 13 years at Newsweek as an economic and foreign affairs editor and a foreign correspondent covering Europe and the Middle East. And now joining us in the studio in New York is Rana Furuhar. I think I got it right that last time, did I? <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we're going to get into the substance of the book, um, but those of you that watch Reality Asserts Itself, you know we usually start with a personal section, and while we don't have quite enough time to do the whole Rana's whole biography, we are going to start <laughs> with, with a personal question. So you're writing in the Financial Times. Um, you know all kinds of people on Wall Street. Um, you know how all this works. Um, why aren't you cashing in? <laughs> what, why are you exposing well, that was it? That's what the book was supposed to be, Paul. <laughs> yeah, it's not not quite as good as a Wall Street bonus, but um, yeah. Um, you know, I actually did do a brief stint in finance. I, I worked for about a year in London. Um, this is quite telling. In 1999, for a high tech incubator that was funded by Citigroup. And um, I left in part because I had been writing a lot about finance and about technology. This was the last dot-com bubble, um, as you remember, in the late 90s. And um, I had gotten this call, uh, and this big company was looking for to hire journalists uh, to do B2C media deals, which right there should have been the sign of a market top, frankly. Um, but I took it because I thought it would be really interesting to see how the sausage was made. And it was, and uh, and it was very telling. Um, but I I love journalism. I love telling stories. I think it's much more interesting, frankly, than a lot of what happens in the financial sector. You get rich, but um, you have to do not only some shady things sometimes, but a lot of boring things. <laughs> but but the the kind of wealth that's being gener generated in that top, not even just the top tier, from middle to top tier yeah. of finance is not known in human history. Right. Uh, you, you could be part of that. Um, yeah, I guess I could. It's, it's funny, I've, I've really never felt the pull. Um, I, I kind of think of myself as a little bit of a, a scholar looking at this group of people that, as a tribe, you know? I mean, they, are, they, they can be studied almost like an anthropologist would, would go into a, a new country and study. I mean, they have their own habits, uh, their own rituals, their own belief system. 
And I just find it fascinating as an outsider to approach that. And actually, I think that being an outsider, not just um, you know from Wall Street, but from the financial press, was actually helpful to me in writing this book. Um, there's an anecdote that I tell in the intro. Um, it was my sort of come to Jesus moment. I know I have to write this book. I was sitting in a meeting, um, an off the record meeting that had been called by a former Obama administration official who'd been very involved in the bailouts. And he was, it was, you know, around 2012, 2013, he was kind of trying to wrap a bow around everything and say, we're all done here. The financial system is safe for nothing to see. And I was there, and there was maybe one other general interest news uh, writer, reporter there, and most of the people around the table were financial beat reporters. Now, those folks have to go back to these wells again and again and again, um, and they can also get very siloed in terms of how they're thinking about the story. But um, this official, former official, was saying, um, you know, we got done everything we need to do. Dodd-Frank is going to make everybody safer. And at the time, and this was four or five years after the financial crisis, I was looking at Dodd-Frank and saying, you know, half the rules have yet to be written. None of them are implemented. You know, we're, we're four or five years on from a crisis. What's going on? And I asked him if he thought that um, the industry had had undue lobbying pressure. Because, of course, one of the reasons why regulation really didn't get done, in my view, properly in the last decade, despite the fact that we had the worst financial crisis in 75 years, is that there was so much lobbying power and the financial sector spent so much money and time putting you know, holes into you know, making, making the regulation into Swiss cheese. So I said to him, do you think that the industry had undue pressure on this regulation? And he said, absolutely not. And then I gave him a statistic um, uh, showing there was an academic at the University of Michigan that had tallied up all the public uh, records and found that 93% of all the meetings on the rulemaking had been taken with the industry itself, and most of them with the top three banks, You know, many of them with the executives whose names you know. And I'll never forget, this was so telling, um, I put that stat out there, and the official looked at me with a real sense of confusion and said, well, who else should we have been talking to? And for me, I was—I looked around the room and I thought, surely everyone's going to be scribbling, and this is going to be, you know, big news. And nobody was really surprised. And I thought, this is how much cognitive capture there is. This is how much power the industry have, has that we're not even questioning. Not only the regulator himself, but. Um, the journalists aren't questioning that this is a problem. I interviewed Bart Chilton from the Commodities Future Trading Commission when yeah. they were working on this position limits uh, led, ruling, I guess, or legislation. And uh, he told me it was 100 to 1. Yeah. How they got lobbied from yeah. finance. And, there were, and it's not that there weren't people out there advocating yeah. for these kinds of reforms. They were out there to be met with. And it's not like they didn't know stuff. They Absolutely. did. Absolutely. They I just mean, didn't get the meetings. Well, and I, I, you know, Bart's a great source. I've, I've also had conversations with Anat Admati, who you may know, who wrote The Banker's New Clothes. She's an academic at Stanford. She said, nobody called me. I mean, this is one of the you know, world experts on uh, financial regulatory issues. These people were purposely not let into the room. And for good reason when one looks at the kind of money being made by everybody concerned. And you talk in your book about the revolving door, the right. people making regulation laws one day or back into the financial institutions the next. Yeah, and, absolutely. All right, let me read, a, I'm gonna read a quote from your book. Okay. Our system of market capitalism is sick and the big picture symptoms, slower than average growth, higher income inequality, stagnant wages, Greater market fragility, the inability of many people to afford middle-class basics like a home, retirement, and education 
are being felt throughout our entire economy and indeed our society. Our economic illness has a name, financialization. And that's the theme of your book. Yeah. Um, so let's, because we don't have too much time, let's just start with the very beginnings of how financialization takes place, the why banks start yeah. to play such a role in society. And then I think we'll probably focus on a couple of things you focus as models, the formation of Citigroup, and then we'll do Apple. Yeah. So let's talk about how financialization develops in the United States, but let's first talk about what is financialization. Yeah. So I define financialization, as do many academics, as the process by which the financial sector um, has come to be the tail that wags the dog, if you will. If you go back to you know Adam Smith, the father of modern capitalism, he would have looked at the financial sector as a catalyst for other sectors. So the financial sector is an allocator of capital. It helps businesses grow. It you know, allocates money to people who are job creators in retail, in manufacturing, in construction, et cetera. It's never the end game. It's the facilitator. But I argue in my book that basically since the early 1970s, we started to go through a real sea change in our economy, in our politics, in our society, where finance itself became the game. And you can see this. I mean, if you think about the way in which um, we talk about our economy, um, we started out as an agrarian society, then we became a manufacturing economy, and then a service economy. And the idea was that at the very top of that triangle would sit the financial sector, and politicians came to speak of it as we should all be aspiring to be right there at the tippy top of that um, of that triangle. But if really, if you think about Adam Smith and the way he envisioned capitalism working, you would flip that. You know, you would have finance be at the very bottom, facilitating other kinds of businesses that actually create real jobs and real growth on Main Street. Here's another excerpt from Makers and Takers. Rather than funding the new ideas and projects that create jobs and raise wages, finance has shifted its attention to securitizing existing assets like homes, stocks, bonds, and such, turning them into tradable products that can be spliced and diced and sold as many times as possible. That is until things blow up as they did in 2008. Academic research shows that only a fraction of all the money washing around the financial markets these days actually makes it to Main Street businesses. As recently as the 1970s, the majority of capital coming from financial institutions would have been used to fund business investments, whereas today's estimates indicate that figure at around 15%. The rest simply stays inside the financial system, enriching financiers, corporate titans, and the wealthiest fraction of the population which hold the vast majority of financial assets in the United States and indeed the world. Please join us for part two of our interview series with Rana Faruhar on Reality Asserts Itself on The Real News Network.